we often read Apocalyptic as if the message of the book was the end is nigh. Actually, it's not. If the end is nigh, you are thrilled in those circumstances. We're almost you, done with all of this yeah, suffering. Yeah, yet, please, right? please, Lord, come back now. What you need and what Apocalyptic supplies is, how do I get through this if the end is not nigh? If I still have years to go, if I still have many of my family members to watch being martyred in front of my eyes, how do I survive that? And that's what Apocalyptic gives us. Welcome to The Blessed Podcast. I'm Nancy Guthrie, author of the newly released book, Blessed, Experiencing the Promise of the Book of Revelation. Revelation begins and ends with the promise that those who hear and keep what is written in it will be blessed. And we want that blessing. And so we need to hear what this book has to say to us and then live in light of it. Now, on this podcast, I'm having conversations with people who can help us to hear it and to understand its message to us and also to help us reckon with what it is going to mean for us to live in light of that message. And my guest today is Dr. Ian Duguid. Uh, Ian, thank you so much for being willing to help us as we explore the book of Revelation. It's a pleasure to be here. Reverend Ian Duguid is professor of Old Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary, and I'm loving getting to sit here at the seminary to have this conversation with him. Now, his doctoral research was on the book of Ezekiel, and if you have uh, dipped into Revelation at all, then uh, then you're going to know that you're going to have to understand some Ezekiel to understand the book of Revelation. He's published a commentary on Ezekiel, Song of Songs, so many others, uh, Esther and Ruth, Daniel. One reason I wanted to talk to Dr. Duguid is that last year I heard him give a talk as I was working on my book, Blessed. I heard him give a talk called Doxological Evangelism in Practice, Preaching Apocalyptic Literature, which he gave for the Westminster Conference on Preaching and Preachers here at Westminster Theological Seminary. Now, you might wonder why I'm going to talk to an Old Testament expert and professor about the book of Revelation. And if somebody were to ask you that question, Ian, why would you say that it's maybe a good idea to talk to someone who really understands, especially those prophetical books of Ezekiel and Daniel, if we're going to talk about the book of Revelation? Well, there was a 19th century scholar who said before he started studying the book of Revelation, he committed himself to study the book of Ezekiel for 10 years, the book of Zechariah for 10 years, and the book of Daniel for 10 years. And then he felt he was ready to tackle Revelation. Revelation is just built on the Old Testament. The, the New Testament as a whole is just built on the Old Testament. But particularly the book of Revelation with its images and pictures and figures, which draw so heavily on the images and pictures and figures of the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, we're likely to, to misunderstand and misapply them if we don't see the larger context. It's written to people who John expects to understand the Old Testament. And he expects them to pick up these illusions and, and to pick up the whole background of those illusions as well. Yeah, and that's a that's a difference maybe for us as a modern audience, isn't it? Because I think about most of my life, honestly, the books I have probably avoided the most for a lot of my life were books like Ezekiel. <laughs> maybe not Daniel, because the first half of it is a great story, right? So we kind of know the first half of Daniel, uh, but a book like Zechariah. I mean, we, we avoid those because they seem kind of intimidating, kind of challenging. Well, often we, we avoid the books that we haven't heard preached. 
mm. uh, preachers have a great opportunity to help their people by preaching on the harder texts of the Bible. Uh, we often gravitate towards the easy texts, but uh, then we don't help our people to read the harder texts. People read the Bible the way they hear it preached, for better or for worse. And so if all of the preaching is, here are five tips for your spiritual life, you're never going to get into the latter part of Daniel or Zechariah or Ezekiel because that's not what those books are about. Uh, but uh, those books are vital to help us at different times of the Christian life. And if we're not prepared to know how to read them, then we won't have them uh, in our arsenal ready to use when we actually come to need them. And so these books we're talking about in the Old Testament, they include this particular literary genre type of apocalyptic. And so maybe one reason we don't read them and are challenged by Revelation is that's just such a unique genre of literature. I mean, poetry has its challenges. Narrative, maybe maybe that's a little bit easier for us, or at least we think so, to follow a story and to try to get the point. And so maybe a good place for us to begin is simply to define what we mean when we talk about apocalyptic literature. Right. So apocalyptic literature depicts the ending of the current age of chaos and strife and, and turmoil and its replacement with a final eschatological age of peace and joy and happiness. It's addressed to people who are suffering and persecuted. Uh, we often read apocalyptic as if the message of the book was the end is nigh. Actually, it's not. If the end is nigh, you are thrilled in those circumstances. We're almost you, done with all of this yeah, suffering. Yeah, then, please, right? please, Lord, come back now. What you need and what ap apocalyptic supplies is, how do I get through this if the end is not nigh? If I still have years to go, if I still have many of my family members to watch being martyred in front of my eyes, how do I survive that? And that's what apocalyptic gives us. But it doesn't tell us very straightforwardly or at least in the way maybe we want it described to us. It uses strange creatures and this uh, otherworldly kind of imagery. So maybe that's what's so off-putting to us about it. Right. It, yes. And uh, if you think, of, I mean, we think of a propaganda as a neg kind of negative word, but if you think of the positive aspect of propaganda, of communicating hope, um, imagine yourself in an occupied Dutch village in the Second World War and uh, the Nazis are everywhere. You're, you're not worried about the, you know, the most beautiful village in the Netherlands campaign that your village has won the last 10 years. That's all gone. The Nazis want you to believe this is the way it will be forever. Uh, resistance is useless, you will be assimilated, as the Borg put it in Star Trek. What you need to do is to maintain hope that there is a different future, that this is not the way the rest of the story goes. And, and the way often you see that communicated is in caricatures. And so when you depict the Nazis, uh, you depict them in very Indiana Jones-ish terms. I mean, they are the ultimate bad guys. Uh, and when you depict the allies who you hope are going to come and rescue, you know, it, there's no black and white there. They're the good guys. Even though the real allies, when they come and rescue you, will be anything but that. But in order to maintain hope, you, you view them as, as the, the, the knight in shining armor. I mean, that's another image, isn't it, from, from fairy tales? Uh, because you need to make this sharp disjunction between good and evil, between the present and the future, uh, and all of that with the goal of maintaining hope that what you see is not what you get. 
that this present evil age is not the end of the story, that there is a happy ending for those who remain faithful. Uh, and that's, that's the, the, the payoff pitch for Apocalyptic is stay faithful, stay in the game, give it all you've got. It is worth it. You will never regret in eternity the sacrifices you made for Christ and the gospel. And, and, and in the face of, of, of opposition that is in your face, that is massacring people in front of you, that is pulling your fingernails out, uh, it's not enough just to say, oh, yeah, this, heaven is a real place. You've got to paint me a picture. And that picture has to be video rather than audio. It has to be very bright, very vivid, uh, grab you by the throat uh, and, uh, and show you that it really matters that you remain faithful because heaven is glorious and hell is awful. And whatever you suffer in order to get into heaven and to avoid going to hell will be absolutely worth it on that last day. And there, thereby the vividness when you talk about grab you by the throat, you know, we, we maybe read some of these passages and we just think, this is so strange, I can't understand it. And you're saying it's meant to grab us by the throat with this vivid image and shake us a bit, right? Right. Yeah, I think often we, we get too caught up in the details. Well, it's an Impressionist painting, right? If you get, get too close to Impressionist painting, all you see is dots of color. You have to step back a bit and see the, see the whole. Uh, well, it's the same same way. If if you get too close to apocalyptic and and too focused on the details, then you miss the the you know the whole thing. Uh, it's like you know being at a movie theater. Nobody wants to sit in the front row. Why not? Because you need to sit back a bit to see the, you know to get the force of the big screen. Otherwise, you just get a headache. And and I think a lot of people have got too close and just got a headache from apocalyptic. And they've missed the power of the big picture. This is why children don't have a problem with apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, talk to kids about the book of Revelation. Uh, my son Jamie was obsessed with the book of Revelation when he was about 11 or 12. You know, there was a Reformation Day party at our church where kids got to dress up as their favorite Bible character or uh, a person from church history. And there's all these, you know, little Martin Luthers and Davids. And <laughs> My son was a Martin Luther. We yeah. sell the wig. It's really Yeah, good. well, my son okay. was the angel of judgment from the <laughs> oh, seventh fall of judgment from the book of Revelation. <laughs> Um, I'd like to see the picture of that. <laughs> yeah, he, well, he was always a little different kid. But uh, he was fascinated by it because he, he saw the big picture. Mm. Th- this is an amazing battle in which God wins, and it's glorious. And he, he got that. And, you know, since he's, you know, he's taught Book of Revelation to middle school retreat yeah. because kids, kids get it. Mm-hmm. They understand mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the term itself a mm. little bit and the development even of this of an un- understanding of this genre genre of literature. I mean, as I understand it, and so you know more about this than I do. So you've got the book of Revelation that uses a lot of the same imagery toward the same purpose as books like Ezekiel uh, and, you know, the second half of Daniel, Zechariah. But like when, when Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah wrote, there wasn't a known genre. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to, let's see, what shall I write this in? Should I write it in poetry? Should I write in Oh, I'm going to write it in apocalyptic. No, but then we've got Revelation, and it almost, once that is described as this apocalypse, where this word actually is used in the very first verse of the book, this is an apocalypse, that, am I correct, that that in a sense gets applied backwards to these books of Ezekiel? Yeah, or? nobody in antiquity sat down and thought, I'm writing a, a narrative, 
mm-hmm. or I'm writing a poem. Mm-hmm. They didn't have those terms. They just were familiar with different forms of literature, and so they adopted the ones that that fitted their purposes. Um, and those forms themselves grow and develop. So poetry, uh, I mean, poetry is a kind of general term, but for example, haiku is a specific form of poetry with a specific history in a specific place. You don't find haiku in the Bible. Well, apocalyptic as a developed form really starts to develop towards the the end of the intertestamental period. But the precursors of that, I think you find earlier. In biblical literature or outside biblical literature or both? Yeah, within biblical literature, you know, the the clearest example uh, in the Old Testament would be Daniel 7 through 12. And again, that's part of the reason why some people want to date that very late, because they want to put it alongside other apocalyptic literature. Ezekiel isn't really apocalyptic. Um, 38 and 39 have some similarities, but they also have some similarities with the Psalms of Zion's protection. Um, And so that can be overstated. Um, Isaiah 24 through 27 has some similarities to apocalyptic. Uh, I think it's helpful to remember these are labels that we put on from the outside. Right. I mean, Revelation calls itself an apocalypse, an unveiling. That's simply what that word means. Maybe it's helpful just to use that word. Instead of talking about apocalyptic, just talk about unveiling. Mm-hmm. Because that how, that's more helpful to most. I mean, most people, apocalyptic sounds crazy and weird. Unveiling gets you to what we're actually doing here, which is opening the windows of heaven and giving you a glimpse to the stuff you don't normally see. Which I think is exactly opposite of the way people think of Revelation. They think of it being very, uh, very hidden. Right. That somehow you've got to dig deep to find these things because it's not out there and obvious, which seems to go against exactly what the book is saying. It's, it's written to unveil something, to show us something. Right. And that, again, I think is because... Yeah, I and mean, we confuse the book of Revelation with conspiracy theory stuff. Uh, and conspiracy theory stuff is all focused about this hidden stuff that, that only the Illuminati can really understand. But the book of Revelation is about an unveiling. It's about a, re- a revelation of something. Uh, and the reason we miss that is because we're focused on all the wrong things. We're focused on the difficult, confusing details, okay. and we miss the big picture. Uh, we miss the fact that central to the book of Revelation is, is worship, the worship that is right now going on in heaven. Uh, and, and, and why do you miss that? Well, because life is hard. And, and so we're often focused on the world as it is in front of us. Uh, and, and we forget that, that what we see is, is the actors on the stage, if you like, but the real action is taking place behind the stage, behind the, the curtain, if you like, uh, in heaven, where even now all nations and tribes and peoples are bowing down in worship to the Lamb who was slain. Uh, and that heavenly song that we will one day join in uh, is even now uh, being sung by multitudes. We want the book of Revelation to give us some kind of secret knowledge that yes. we, can, we can lord over other people. Uh, and so we, we, we neglect the obvious stuff. That's too simple. That's too trivial. But if you're in that situation where when you go to church on Sunday morning, you dress extra warmly because you don't know if you're going home, as some of our brothers and sisters in China do, you need to hear this truth. 
the, the, the simple central truth that, that there is a conflict between good and evil in which the Lord wins and in which his saints reign forever, uh, casting down their crowns before the golden throne. You know, that image is what will sustain you in, that, in those moments as, as you don't know when somebody's going to burst through that door and arrest you. You don't need uh, theories about what exactly the seventh horn is and all of that stuff. That, that, that doesn't help you a bit, uh, but the big picture does. The glorious truth that Revelation is designed to unveil, that, that's the blessing that it provides to its original hearers uh, and, and to us if we'll heed it. What are some of the skills that maybe because we're not very familiar with this kind of literature, what are some of the skills we need to develop as we come to reading apocalyptic that we might not just have naturally? We need to learn how to uh, understand images within their biblical contexts. Okay. Um, so, uh, so for example, uh, we read about a, a, you know, a beast from the earth and a beast from the sea. Now, if, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that should immediately conjure up images of Job 38 through 41, Behemoth and Leviathan, which again, mm-hmm. people want to turn into crocodiles and hippos and all, all the rest of it. But the whole point of that, that passage is the Lord is saying to Job, you're not able to wrestle with these, these creatures. But guess what? The Lord is able to put a leash on them and take mm-hmm. them walksies. Yeah. Um, and... and yeah, people do wrestle with crocodiles and did in antiquity. Uh, so that, that that doesn't get the point. And and Job has not been, you know, he's he's not been in a Jurassic Park experience. Job has been assaulted by the evil one. And he's suffering. And he's suffering. And he needs to know that, as Martin Luther put it, the devil is God's devil. That that Satan can only go so far and no further, which we as readers know from the, the frame narrative of the book of Job. But Job himself has not yet heard that. Uh, and so it's vital for him to understand that, you know, these are not earthly creatures. These are not dinosaurs. These are the forces of evil personified. And even in their personified form, the Lord can, you know, just roll them over and tickle their tummies. They're, they're chihuahuas. Um, they're not wolves. So we see something like beast, right? And we go back to the Old Testament, and we can see it in in Job, and we can see it elsewhere. This mm. satanic evil right, right. that's at work in the world, but that we actually realize God has total control over, right? But as John writes about something such as the beast, using that as our our example, he's got a current day referent to this beast too, doesn't he? Yeah, well, potentially. How does the e- how is the evil right. in his day take right. shape? Yeah, yeah and, and you know we talk about recapitulation as as a theme in the Book of Revelation. The fact that it's presenting the same story from different perspectives repeatedly. Um, I mean, we have movies that do that, right? You know, people who who are living the same you know, day over and over again, uh, and 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 that's a way of telling a particular story. I've never um, thought of using that as an example, but you're talking about like a movie like Groundhog Day, yeah, yeah. right? Where we're going to keep starting over and get to the end again. Okay, right. yeah, I like that. Um, which, of course, is 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 ultimately how the force of evil want you to think about the world. Mm. You know, the whole, the whole point of, of movies like that is that eventually the hero breaks out. Yeah. There, is a, there is an eschatological future. There's, there's a, a meaningful life beyond that. 
Uh, and that's part of the, the message of apocalyptic. Well, so too, in the world, there's sort of a cyclical pattern of evil. It's not coincidental that whenever you live, you can find people who will fit, in broad terms, the biblical depiction of the end times. Uh, I mean, you can see that with if you look at the history of interpretation of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, this figure of Gog, um, you find academics who want to find a, a, a historical figure, um, but you can't find anybody who's quite bad enough. You know, there are some people who sort of fit, but don't quite. And then you look through church history, and uh, you know, in the time of Augustine, it, it's it's the Goths. Uh, later on, it's the Mongol Empire. Then it's the Pope. Then uh, during the First World War, all of a sudden, Germany and Russia start to come onto the scene, and it's whoever is threatening the the church in this age, and and uh, Satan is really not all that creative. Uh, he only has three strategies: persecution, seduction, and deception. And I think persecution is his favorite. He enjoys that most, but recognizes perhaps that it's not always the most effective of his strategies. But you see those three strategies in the book of, of Revelation, and, and, and you see them repeatedly in history. And, you know, we talk about the message of the book of Revelation for the persecuted church. That's the most obvious one. But for us who are not at this point most persecuted, we need to be really alert to the other strategies of, of seduction and deception because we live in a context in which we are very easily seduced and deceived. Mm. And Apocalyptic has a message for those people too, for us in that sense. I mean, you read through the seven letters in chapters two and three. Some of them are dealing with persecution. Right. Some of them are being seduced and some of them are being deceived. Right. I love that framework you've given me now. Right. And, 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 and notice the, one, the churches that are being persecuted are the churches generally that the writer has good things to say to. Mm-hmm. And the churches he has the strongest words to are the ones that are being seduced and deceived. And as we get to the end of Revelation, like 17 through 19, you've got this picture of the harlot. Right. And the issue is that she's out to seduce you. Right. right? To keep you from being part of this pure bride. Right. Yeah. She's also drunk with the blood of the saints. Right. Yes. So you can persecute. But, but she's also out to seduce. Yeah. Uh, and so when we think of Babylon... Uh, when we think, of, you know, and, and people identify it with Rome, which probably in that context it was, uh, I think it's a, mis- uh, it's a category mistake for us to think about it, it reappearing as modern Rome. I think we should see it in the forces that, that want to spread the word of materialism. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's, it's, it's Madison Avenue, it's New York, it's L.A. Uh, and, and, and for some of us, even that's too safe a target. It's, it's right de- around the corner. And we are being drawn in uh, and seduced and deceived. And we, uh, apocalyptic wants to warn us, to keep us on our guards. And again, it wants to, it, it, to shake us yeah. because we're, we're, we're sleepwalking through life. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing the persecuted church is not doing is sleepwalking through life. Uh, persecution wakes you up in very short order. But the church, when it's being seduced, when it's being deceived, is not seeing reality. Persecution the, isn't the only danger. It is not, not, nor even the greatest danger for the church in many cases. Yeah. As I uh, worked on this book on Revelation, I, I wrote in the, in the introduction at the end of it that going into it, I thought the greatest challenge to Revelation would be to understand it, hmm. but that now I think the greatest challenge of Revelation is to live out its call 
to patient endurance mm. of suffering and to remain free of compromise. Right. This, this, this call over and over again to not be seduced, to not compromise. That's where the rubber re- meets the road, I think, in my life right. and in so many people's lives as we live in a place where persecution. We might point to maybe being misunderstood or maligned or whatever. Maybe we want to quickly call that persecution. Probably not right. in light of what you know the larger world. But I think for most of us, this being lulled into compromise uh, and being deceived. Right. Yeah, we're big- afraid of the wrong things. Yeah. We're afraid of of somebody coming in with a rifle, putting it to our head, and saying, "Confront, you know, renounce Christ or die." I don't want to diminish that, but in some respects, that's easier. It's a it's a, it's easier a, to recognize. Yeah, it's a single decision, and and you're done. In many respects, it's harder. This patient endurance of suffering, you know. To me, the, the the harder endurance for the persecuted church are those people, you know, who are locked up in solitary confinement, who are who are isolated day after day after day, uh, who have to live out their faith in 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 that kind of context. That's much harder, I think, than than the kind of momentary uh, courage that's needed to 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 die for your faith. Um, and and we live in a culture that does not prepare us. For patient endurance, um, you know what? What training do we have in that? Um, we're trained wh- whenever you want something, go get it. You know, yeah. buy it on credit and uh, DoorDash. Yeah, we'll just call and get the food delivered. Right? Yeah, what, whatever, whatever you want, get it right now. And so we're very unprepared for lives of of patient endurance. And and Revelation wants to to help us to get there. You said in your lecture that the purpose of apocalyptic is to comfort and exhort the faithful, which I think most people, when they think about apocalyptic literature, sadly, they don't think of that being at the heart of it. Uh, rather than reveal something, they think about it being very hidden or, or covered up. And rather than comforting, they actually think about it as scary. Right. Yes. Well, uh, you know, a lot of people were raised on thinking of the book of Revelation as a scary book because this uh, fear that at any moment, the Lord, uh, you know, could you know could rapture His church, and if you're not ready, then you're going to get left behind, and and all of that kind of thing, leaves people with this yeah this terrified sense of I've got to discern the time so I can figure out you know the day when the Lord is going to come you know come and rapture His church. There's very little comfort that I've heard in in that kind of preaching, and. You know, the exaltation is is certainly an exaltation to turn to Christ, which which is a good thing. But it, it, yeah, it does seem to be a fear driven exaltation. Uh, it's not the the comfort that you know that God sees what's going on. You know, theodicy, that the justification of God is never far from the surface of apocalyptic. Uh, and 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 how could it be when you're watching friends and family members die for their faith? What is God up to? The cry of the martyrs, how long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? Uh, that's that's a, a, a reflection of the cry of the suffering church. Uh, and the book of Revelation and other apocalyptic, you see the same theme in Daniel, is that the Lord has the days counted. I mean, you know, th- there are a number of days which, again, 
it's impenetrable to us exactly how that number works. I mean, we have some ideas as to why that number, but it's deliberately impenetrable. Daniel doesn't understand. Uh, and if Daniel doesn't understand, I don't feel too bad that I don't understand. But the point is, these are days the Lord, that the Lord has numbered. He knows exactly what day it is. So in some ways, you're referring to the terms he uses in Revelation, this three and a half years. Right. What is it, 1260 60 days, days right. or three and a half months? Right. But then in Daniel, the problem 60 days becomes 1345 days towards the end. You know, it, it's like So you're just, saying rather than like try to figure out a timeline based on that, understand what's being communicated, right. which is God has determined it. Right. It is set. Right. So three and a half you know, a time, times, and half time. Three and a half times is half of seven. So it's not a full period of judgment. It's not, you know, that, that would wipe everybody out. Uh, God has cut it short for the sake of his elect. But equally, it's not just, oh, roughly three and a half months, you know, three and a half years. <laughs> Somewhere in there, the Lord will decide, eh, it's time. The Lord has it down to the day, exactly figured out, because the Lord knows the suffering of his people, and the Lord cares about that. Uh, and that's not, you know, that's not accidental. That's not trivial to God. That matters to God. Uh, and, and he's listening to the cry of the martyrs. You know, what's, what's crucial is that the cry of the martyrs does not go unheard. Yes. You know, it doesn't get an immediate answer. In the fact, I think it's a troubling answer in some yeah. ways in the book of Revelation yeah. when it says, you know, you've got to wait until the wait. full number of those who are going to be killed for their faith comes in. Right, which is not what we expect. Not what we, we expect. We expect, perhaps... Let me come and take care of that. Or at least the answer you get in Second Peter. Uh, you have to wait until the full number of the elect is gathered in, until, you know, until salvation is complete. But no, the Lord says until the full number of the, of the martyrs is complete. In other words, there's something uniquely glorifying to God about people giving up their lives for the sake of, of Christ and the gospel. What a counterintuitive um, message. Even, I think, countercultural in much of our Christian culture, mm. isn't it? Where Christianity is about this thing we apprehend to make our lives work right. Right. And um, I guess that's part of my point in calling the book blessed. I think Revelation shows us a very different picture than what the world tells us about what a blessed life looks like. Right. Yeah, we, we call our churches Thrive or Elevation or something. We don't call it martyrs. Um, and, and, and that, you know, it's not, that's not completely unbiblical, right? There, you know, we, we, do, we, we want thrive. to be blessed. Yeah. We want to be blessed. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but we have this definition of blessing that's different, that is all about us personally being comfortable, I mean, when you when 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 people say you know have a blessed day, what they really mean is be comfortable today. I hope things go well. You know, they, they don't say they're not thinking. I hope you get martyred today. And yet, to those whom John is writing, you know, who are blessed, many of them are facing that kind of persecution. Seven blessed statements in the mm. book of Revelation: Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Right. You know, blessed are those whose robes have been washed and made white. Um, I mean, so many of them, they're all very forward-looking, certainly, mm. but some of them are certainly counterintuitive. Right. About and, and it's because we've lost sight of heaven. You know, so much of our preaching, even in our evangelical churches, is about life here on earth. Yes. And being effective. Right. Yeah, being effective, you know, uh, growing in our earthly sanctification, 
Um, but we've we've lost sight of the glory. We're afraid that people will be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly use, which is utter nonsense. Uh, the conviction of the book of Revelation is we need to be more heavenly minded in order to be of earthly use. In order to endure. In order to endure. Absolutely. To be equipped for patient endurance. Or as John says at the beginning, you know, he's writing to my partners in the kingdom mm. and patient endurance and the suffering that is in Christ Jesus. Absolutely. Where is that message in our churches? Well, that's why we need to preach on Revelation, because if we preach Revelation <laughs> faithfully, we're going to get that repeatedly. Yeah. So someone, maybe they're thinking about either doing their own study of Revelation, they felt intimidated, or maybe even leading a study of the book of Revelation. How would you encourage them? I think you probably need some help to read the book of Revelation. You know, and, and unless you've spent 10 years in Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah, in which case you might be prepared on your own. <laughs> but most of us need help. And, and, and there are good commentaries and, and resources. Uh, your book is, is a great resource. Uh, Dennis Johnson's book, The Triumph of the Lamb, is a great resource. Uh, Vern Poitras' Return of the King. There are resources. And, and then if you really want to delve into the details, there's Greg Beale's massive commentary for those who want the technical stuff. Or you can do his shorter commentary that's still like 700 pages, right? Short, yeah. Shorter, massive commentary. <laughs> well, I, it was really a help to me as I worked on this book, that's for sure. Hmm. Uh, well, thank you, Dr. Duguid. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and insight into this kind of literature and into God's Word. I'm really grateful for the way God has made you and the mind He's given you and the heart He's given you um, and the ability He's given you to communicate these important truths of the gospel. Thank you very much. This has been The Blessed Podcast, a Crossway podcast hosted by Nancy Guthrie, the author of Blessed, Experiencing the Promise of the Book of Revelation. I hope you'll join me for the next episode of The Blessed Podcast. Mm-hmm.